Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed by. He showed His glory to Moses. Moses pleaded, go with us. And the Lord said, behold, I make a covenant. And then He spells out the terms of that covenant. Starting in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, and every male firstling among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, Yahweh God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the firstfruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with the tenor of these words have I made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your word and heed your word. Open our minds that the seed of your word might fall into good soil and grow up and produce fruit a hundredfold. Give us that honest and good heart in which your word can flourish. Help us to shun the things that your covenant people shun and to embrace the things your covenant people embrace. The holy days, the holy gifts, the holy place, and holy worship. We ask that we would be your people and that you would be our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having made the covenant or announced, I am making a covenant, God now repeats its terms. Virtually everything in this section is taken either from chapter 13 or from 
the book of the covenant in chapters 21 to 24. There's no new material here. This is all review. Right? Moses could have said, I'm not writing you a new commandment. I'm writing you an old commandment which you've had since before the golden calf incident. But Israel had proven their willingness to go and worship the golden calf. And so God says, here are rules that will help you not repeat a golden calf style fall into idolatry. Now, people can criticize this. Oh, something went wrong? You're going to make a rule. Sure, another rule will save us. But God is not making new rules. He's repeating rules that he had already made that would have saved them. The other thing to notice is that the law is not God's first response. Israel sins and God doesn't say, All right, I told you, no graven images. Step it up, Israel. God first says, I will go with you. He meets with Moses. He's willing to accept the work of the mediator. And then, once Israel is restored and Moses has seen his glory, then God says, by the way, I am making a covenant with you, and I do expect you to live in this way. God says this after restoration and not before. He doesn't just say, I gave you the Ten Commandments once. Here they are again. Handle it, Israel. He gives the Ten Commandments, and he gives them again. But in between, he says, you have found grace in my sight. I know you by name. He says, I will do marvels. You will see the awesome work of the Lord. So, God reiterates the law of the covenant so his people can faithfully keep that covenant. He reiterates the law of the covenant so his people can faithfully keep that covenant. The first covenant rule, of course, is rule number one, obey all rules. That's how it starts. Observe what I command you this day. My rule is, do what I tell you. That's a good rule. Kids, you probably had your parents tell you this rule. That's the first rule. Do what you're told. And the Lord himself gives this rule. Obey my commands today. Someone who is not fundamentally oriented toward obedience to God can't say, I'm in covenant with God. Right? We just read that in Psalm 50. What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth if you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? God says, I'm making a covenant, and as part of the covenant, I expect, I demand, I command that you will do what I tell you as part of this covenant. If you're walking in sin, ultimately you're not acting like Jesus, the faithful Israelite who keeps the covenant perfectly. That's why sin is such a big deal. You are besmirching the name of Christ, the faithful Israelite, the one who has kept the covenant made with his father. So God says, here, I'm making a covenant. If you're in covenant with me, I need you, I command you to obey me, to do these things. The first part of what the Lord commands is all about covenanting with the inhabitants of the land. Six nations inhabit Canaan. We are privileged to hear their names once again. Now, from a conqueror's perspective, this is a wonderful blessing. 
a land that's inhabited by six nations is a land that we can, well, we can divide them against each other. We can pick them off one by one. One of them will probably help us beat two of the others, and so on. And of course, that's exactly what's hap- what happens. A land inhabited by six nations is a land that is easily conquered. But from a sociocultural perspective, it's bad news for Israel. Because six nations means six different cultures, six different ways of worshiping their false god, six different pagan ways of life, six different avenues of temptation that the devil can exploit. Someone who's not vulnerable to the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Canaanites might find the Hittites and the Amorites incredibly appealing. So the fact that there are six nations, six cultures, six religions in the land of Canaan, or six variants of the broader regional religion, means that from a temptation standpoint, this is a disaster waiting to happen, as of course it was, as the rest of the Bible makes very clear. Israel walked into the land, and Israelite after Israelite started worshiping just like Joe Canaanite next door. God says, don't do that. And here's how not to do that. Don't make a formal covenant with these nations. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. What does he mean? Any formally defined relationship, whether a marriage or a business partnership or a treaty of some kind on the national level, God says anything like that, any formal relationship with the non-believer is going to lead you astray. Formal relationship, I should say, on a peer level. It's okay to work for a non-believer or to have a non-believer work for you. In terms of entering a relationship where you're starting and running a business with someone who's not a believer, marrying someone who's not a believer, or on a national level, making a treaty with someone who's not a believer, God says this is a great way for you to go astray. And he specifically relates it to, you will lose your children. Your son will go after that cute Canaanite girl next door, and next thing you know, right, the language is deliberately coarse, she will whore after her gods. If you want your son to have a faithful wife, tell him not to even think about a non-Israelite woman. Don't do it, son. She's going to be off getting intimate with Baal. And next thing we know, you're going to be off getting intimate with Asherah. That's how these things go. So the Lord says, she'll whore after her gods. Your son will then whore after her gods. And before you know it, you will have reached the end of that road and you will be making your own molten gods. So he's saying, don't go to non-Christian worship events for the sake of being around your neighbor. If people are worshiping something, you don't join them. If they're worshiping their idols, don't be part of that. Right? And so that, that applies across the board, of course, to things that are officially called religious ceremonies, and also to things that aren't. If you enjoy sports, that's fine. But if it's turned from sports into a worship service where everyone is there worshiping the sports god, 
this is exactly what the Lord is talking about. You are training your family to go after other gods. We have this same seed of idolatry in our hearts. If we water the seed like Israel watered the seed, we will betray Jesus, we'll break the covenant. Hence God's warning that the easiest path into idolatry is the social path, the cultural path. The end of that path is to make literal molten gods and to start believing that they can save you. So God warns Moses about that at length, including telling this whole story of you're going to go to your neighbor's sacrificial feast and there your son is going to start getting interested in his daughter and before you know it, your grandkids will be Canaanite pagans. Hence the warning, don't do that. But God doesn't leave it there. He moves on and talks about what the covenant people embrace. Positively, here's what you do if you're following Jesus. You have four holy things. Holy days, holy gifts, the holy place, and holy worship. So he mentions the holy days, keep the Passover, and keep the Sabbath. And then keep the festival of weeks, keep the festival of ingathering. These things that God created, these holidays for his old covenant people, are one major way in which they have something positive. They don't have to go to their neighbor's religious festival. They have their own. So, especially on the Sabbath, he says, whether in seed time or harvest, you shall rest. You have to do this even at the busiest, most stressful times of the agricultural year. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I heard about Sudan grass, a certain kind of plant. Sudan grass, it's good forage for some animals. Anyway, I heard if you're going to go grow it here, it has to be planted between May 15th and May 20th. You plant it any earlier, and the, it will freeze in the ground. Plant it later, and it won't reach maturity. It will freeze before it finishes growing. So you have a six-day window in which to plant your entire farm. On the morning of May 21st, apparently, you might as well quit planting because whatever you get in the ground on that day is not going to make it. Whatever is fallow will have to stay that way. God says, in planting time, harvest time, the weather is perfect, I don't care, you rest. You trust me to provide for you rather than trusting your own hard work. So, you know, think about harvest time. We have all this wheat here. It's ready to harvest. Oh, there's a hailstorm coming. And it's the Sabbath day. Oh, well. It's a very strong statement to yourself and to your neighbor. I trust God more than I trust my own skill to get the crop harvested and undercover before the hail comes and destroys it. When the Sabbath day rolls around, don't say, but the weather is so good today and it'll be terrible tomorrow. Don't say making a living is more important than spending time with God. God's ways are not our ways. And he says, no, worshiping me is more important than making a living. So he says that. And he also says, if you keep these festivals, Passover and then weeks and in gathering, this will help you prevent another golden calf style Outbreak. The festival of weeks is also called Pentecost. 
or first fruits or harvest. So four different names for it in the Bible. Pentecost is the Greek translation. Weeks means seven weeks of seven days or 49 days, which the Greek word for 50 is Pentecost. So it's Pentecost, it's weeks, it's first fruits, it's harvest, depending on where you read. This is the day on which the cycle of first fruits and springtime renewal is interrupted by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not a day to worship idols, but a day to celebrate the Spirit's presence. That will help us stay away from idolatry. The Feast of Ingathering is also known as tabernacles or booths, and the Hebrew word for it is sukkoth. Feast of sukkoth, tabernacles, booths, ingathering. It's a week in which you move out of your house and live in a tent in the backyard, a tabernacle or a booth that you build, to remind yourself, this is what it was like to leave Egypt. Here we are, living like we did on the road. So the Lord actually had his people essentially go camping for a week in the fall in order to recall that he brought them out of Egypt. Just like Passover is celebrated for a week in the spring to remember God brought us out of Egypt. So this cycle of feasts, this cycle of Sabbaths, is one major way that God keeps his people from idolatry. He also tells his people, bring holy gifts. The more you give to me, the less you will want to give to your idols. Giving is a practice that orients you toward the thing to which you're giving. Holy gifts help you stay holy. So he talks about uh, the gift of offspring. Every male firstborn among your livestock has to be given to God. This means the first male born from a female animal. That male goes to the priest. We're told elsewhere you can either donate the animal whole and alive, or you can pay its value in money and add a fit. So you either donate the animal or you give 120% of its value to your local priest. This is a way, especially for people who are stockmen and ranchers, herdsmen, every once in a while, or actually fairly frequently, there's a firstborn from a new mare or a new heifer that's coming online, and you are reminded, I belong to God, my animals belong to God, and I know this because I'm giving this to God. The unclean animals had to be redeemed with a clean animal. That's why he says a donkey has to be redeemed with a lamb or has to be essentially sacrificed to God. If you will not redeem him, break his neck. So your firstborn donkey either is paid for or it has to die. As a reminder, all of these belong to God. The same is true for the firstborn of human beings. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. So you have to pay a certain fee to your local priest for the first child that you have. The first son that you have is a way of saying, Lord, I belong to you. My animals belong to you. My children belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you. God sets up this way of reminding his people not to go after the idols because they belong to him. He also mentions sacrifices. None shall appear before me empty-handed. That is, don't come to one of these three great feasts of the year 
without bringing me something. Not that God wants a gift, per se, that he's lacking something in heaven. It's that God wants us to be holy by giving ourselves and our stuff to him. So holy gifts, giving to God, is another way that we combat idolatry. Holy days, holy gifts, and then he speaks at length about the holy place. He describes everyone going to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord, Yahweh God of Israel. I will cast out the nations, and you can go up and appear before my presence. He says, I will make your land large. You'll conquer the nations, but what that means is that it might be a long trip to Jerusalem. You might be gone for two or three weeks. Now, for a farmer, that's hard enough. It's hard to grow crops when you're gone for two weeks at a stretch three times a year. But if you're gone for two weeks at a stretch three times a year and you have a covetous neighbor who might graze his stock on your land or let his animals break down your vineyard and destroy your fields or who might try to you know, move the fence five, four or five feet each year, there's reason to say, I know I'm, I'm staying right here. I can't afford to go to Jerusalem this year. I don't trust my non-worshipping neighbor who definitely does not go to Jerusalem. So the Lord gives this promise to his people and says, no man will covet your land when you go up to appear before me three times a year. It's not just that I'll stop them from doing bad things to you. I'll stop them from wanting to do bad things to you. He promises us If you worship me, you will not be the loser by it. Well, that's a pretty impressive promise. I've known people who have claimed this promise, who used to work on Sunday and then said, I can't do this anymore. I don't believe that I will lose out by worshiping God on his day. And they haven't. (coughs) But... That's what he says. You won't starve. You won't lose your land just because you did what I told you and came to worship. So God will protect your land while you worship. The final solution to the problem of idolatry is holy worship. And he offers, he mentions just a few worship regulations. Don't offer leaven. Don't let Passover sit all night. Give the first of your first fruits. At the house of God, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What do these have to do? Well, they're just a quick summary of his rules for worship. It's God's way of reminding us, I control worship. I tell you how I want to be worshipped. You don't decide how I want to be worshipped. I decide how I want to be worshipped. How do we stay away from idolatry? We don't enter into formally defined relationships with non-believers. And we do keep God's day holy. We do give Him gifts that belong to Him. We do come and worship Him in the church, His new covenant holy place. And we worship Him as He says He wants to be worshipped. Rather than worshipping Him how we imagine that He must like to be worshipped. When we do these things, we show that we are God's covenant people who have been rescued from Egypt and rescued from idolatry. 
Do these things and you will be God's beloved, obedient children. Jesus did these things. He kept the holy days. He brought the holy gifts and especially the gift of himself. He came to the holy place three times a year and more. And he worshipped exactly as the Father wanted him to, especially in the sacrifice of himself. He was a covenant keeper. And if we imitate him in his strength, we will be too. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to keep your covenant, to do what you want us to do, to obey your statutes, to worship you, to keep your holy days, to give you holy gifts in your holy place, in holy worship. Deliver us, Father, from ungodliness. Help us to be exactly what you have called us to be, faithful, righteous, holy people. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.